1: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Babbitts. Today's guest is Ann Tucker, author of Newest Born of Nations, European Nationalist Movements and the Making of the Confederacy, published by the University of Virginia Press. In Newest Born of Nations, Dr. Tucker reveals how elite white Southerners developed an international perspective on nationhood, one that helped them, one, clarify their own national values, two, conceive of the South as distinct from the North, And three, ultimately define and legitimize the Confederacy. Thank you so much for being with us, Anne. Thank
0: you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here.
1: To get things started, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. So I'm currently an assistant professor of history at the University of North Georgia, and I completed my PhD at the University of South Carolina, And I would say I come by my love of history naturally. My family was always talking about history, going to historical sites on our family vacations. My sister is also an academic historian. So history has always been a big part of my life. And I'm just so thrilled I've been able to make it into a career and share my love of history with other folks through my book now.
1: That's great. How did you get into specifically researching newest born of nations, what initially attracted you to the topic?
0: So like I say, I've really grown up in the South, spent most of my time in the South. And from the time I was young, I was always kind of interested in the issue of really kind of what's up with the South? Why is there such a strong sense of Southern identity that you don't really hear about so much in other regions of the nation? So that was really one of my motivating questions that I wanted to answer as I researched history. And then when I was in college at Wake Forest University, I had the opportunity to study abroad in Venice, Italy, which I immediately fell in love with. And I loved Italy and was really kind of struck by some of the similarities I saw between Italy and the South, actually. So both Italy and the U.S. have a South with a separate identity, kind of the agricultural region separate from the more industrial north. Both nations underwent conflicts of nationalism in the middle of the 19th century. So with the Italian Risorgimento, Italy became a nation right as the U.S. is fighting about whether or not it will remain a nation in the American Civil War. And so I wanted to study Italy and Italian identity and nationalism, even as I was inspired to study Southern identity and nationalism. And so I was looking for a way to combine those interests. And I started researching well, what are Southerners saying about Italy and the Italian Risorgimento? And what I ultimately ended up finding was really more significant than even I had anticipated at first, because what I found is that white Southerners really were using their analysis and knowledge of Italy and other new nations and Europe in the 19th century to shape their sense of Southern identity. So, my work looks at how Southerners used international comparisons and analysis to shape this sense of Southern identity and this idea of what is the South.
1: And it's really fascinating because this is this is tons of stuff that I did not know about, especially uh, the inspiration that Southern nationalists found in other European revolutions that occurred Probably in the three or four decades before the American Civil War. So what what did they find when they were looking at those European revolutions, and how did it inspire them with their quest for nationhood?
0: Yeah, so we've got several waves of nationalist revolutions sweeping through Europe and really throughout the Atlantic world in the first half of the 19th century – And in Europe, there's the Greek nationalist movement, the revolutions of 1830, the revolutions of 1848, this Italian Risorgimento, all of which are really centering around these bigger issues of nationhood with aspiring nations trying to break free of larger empires and declare themselves to be independent nations. So before they were even Southern nationalists, before they even thought about the idea of a Southern nation, white Southerners were really studying these events abroad and drawing conclusions that ultimately shaped their idea of their own nationhood. So in the European revolutions of 1848, for example, elite white Southerners were basically analyzing these revolutions to figure out what were the proper values and expression of nationalism. So this movement is good because of this, that movement is bad because of that. And what they did through that analysis was they really refined their beliefs about what a nation should and should not be. And they also really started developing this international perspective where they started thinking about foreign nations as connected to Southern values because they're judging foreign nations by Southern values. And this is in turn teaching these white Southerners to connect their own nationality, their own national values to nations abroad. So this antebellum analysis really, as you said at the beginning, helped these white Southerners conceive of the South as a potential nation, as well as help them determine the key values that they wanted to uphold within that nation.
1: I think one thing that your book does really well is then you trace how um, this whole kind of discourse is interacting with, say, the Mexican-American War, and then the filibuster efforts of the 1950s. So how did those other events shape an international understanding of Southern nationhood?
0: The 1850s was really a critical decade for the development of this international perspective, because, of course, in 1848, you had those revolutions that the white southerners were using to decide what national values should be. And then it's going to be in 1860 that white Southerners will begin seceding from the United States of America. So it's here in the 50s that we see this turning point where white Southerners start using this, nas- this international perspective on nationalism to really start pushing for an independent Southern nation. And where we really start seeing the active use of international comparisons to kind of justify a separate south as distinct from the north is really in the wake of the mexican-american war and this takes us really to the issue of territorial expansion the united states has just seized huge amounts of land from mexico and now the question becomes is there going to be slavery in this land and white southerners say absolutely there should be slavery But of course, there's a growing abolitionist movement in the North that's seeking to block slavery in the Mexican session. And so what happens is white Southerners take this international perspective that they've already begun developing and start using it to build international comparisons that will really help them express their outrage at Northern attempts to block slavery in the Mexican session. So what they start doing is they're arguing that Northern attempts to ban slavery were the equivalent of European tyrannies and despotisms. So they say that blocking the expansion of slavery is the equivalent of violating rights and preventing people from participating in self-government. So there's really this new idea emerging amongst elite white Southerners that the South is the equal of an oppressed nation In Europe, and the North was the equal of a European style despot, all because Northerners sought to limit the expansion of slavery into this Mexican session. So, this was obviously an inaccurate comparison that they're making. The South is not being oppressed, um, even if slavery had been blocked, which it was not. But this is still a major step in teaching white Southerners to really use these international comparisons to develop the idea of the South as distinct from the North and as a unit worthy of comparison with other nations. And the filibuster movement plays out in kind of similar ways in that it's another issue about territorial expansion and slavery That white southerners explore through this developing international perspective. So the filibuster movements were private military expeditions where a private citizen would mount a private expedition to invade and conquer a foreign nation. Cuba and Nicaragua were the key targets in particular, and this became popular amongst many white southerners as another way of expanding slavery. So although white Southerners do disagree on filibustering, by the end of the decade, it, filibustering increasingly has kind of a pro-slavery Southern vibe to it. And white Southerners are increasingly using this international perspective to say filibustering was a viable method of nation building and expansion according to these international comparisons. So they're comparing filibustering with European nationalist movements to really try and justify what they're doing. And they're still comparing the North with European tyrants. So as the as the U.S. government tries to stop filibustering, these white Southerners say the attempts to stop filibustering are creating European-style despotism against white Southerners. So you can see the territorial expansion of slavery really does become this turning point then where white Southerners aren't just watching what's happening abroad and analyzing it through their own values. Now they're looking at what's happening at home and using these international comparisons to really set the South apart from the North and again, conceive of the South as a potential nation.
1: I think one of the great things that you do in your introduction is you discuss what liberalism and conservatism meant at this moment in time. And it's very different than maybe what people might think of today as what's liberal and what's conservative. So what what do those words, liberal and conservative, mean to white Southerners as they debate nationhood?
0: Yeah, this is something that um, I ended up having to spend a lot of time on to really wrap my mind around and make clear to my audience as I was writing Newest Born of Nations, because really so much of what I'm talking about does, you know, go back to these ideas of political beliefs. And we do kind of have this idea of Annabelle and white Southerners as very conservative. And of course they were. But what I found in these international comparisons is the story is actually more complex than that. Because these white Southerners were still very inspired by the liberal values of the American Revolution as well. So when I'm talking about these liberal values, we're talking about Enlightenment-inspired ideas of rights and self-government and liberty and all those founding values of the United States. And these were really still the positive political values that many white Southerners sought. So there's a strong liberal strain, but it's tempered by the existence of slavery because white southerners, who are invested in slaveholding want to make sure, of course, that the people of the self-government does not include enslaved people. And so on the conservative side, we see these white Southerners really embracing conservative ideas of hierarchy and social order as ways of kind of tempering that republicanism and tempering that those more liberal values. So they want republicanism, but they don't want social and even political equality, for example. So what I really found is that the white southerners who are drawing these international comparisons are really kind of drawing from and blending both of these ideologies and being influenced equally by liberalism and conservatism. And that's where we see, as I identify in this work, they actually developed a liberal and a separate conservative international perspective on defending secession and the Confederacy. So white Southerners were really drawing on both of these ideas. And in some ways, that's very much part of the way they're situating themselves as part of this larger international world, there's a debate going on in the 19th century Atlantic world about political values and nationhood and how nations should and should not express those political values. And my subjects I look at very much see the South and its unique political values as part of this larger international discussion over what nations should look like and how political power should work.
1: And I think one of the other fascinating things that you do is you really dive deep into newspapers, um, which are great sources, but you also talk about how they lim- have their limitations and that you're really talking about elite white Southerners. So uh, what about that source space that uh, did you find most fascinating and useful for this this study?
0: Yeah, you know, the newspapers and magazines and other print sources really became important to this project because it ultimately evolved that this project is really about public discourse. So what I'm really looking at here is how white Southerners were trying to convince an audience that their view of Southern nationhood was best. And so, when we're looking at that, these newspapers, magazines, pamphlets, etc., really represent the best source base for how some Southerners are trying to convince other Southerners, as well as an outside audience, that here's the way we should think about Southern nationhood. Here are the proper values. Here's the way the South fits within this international community of nations. So, these print discourse sources were really important to helping me understand how white Southerners are really trying to shape Southern identity and Southern nationalism.
1: And I think you were able to use these print sources to uh, outline three different perspectives that emerged uh, before and, and then also take shape during the Civil War. I was wondering if you could, for our listeners, talk about these three perspectives that emerged at this time and how they uh, influenced secession and debates around secession.
0: Absolutely. So I ended up identifying two different secessionist confederate perspectives. So this is the liberal international perspective and the conservative international perspective. These are the ones that secessionists were using to justify secession and confederates are then using to justify and define the confederacy. And the liberal secessionist perspective was the most widespread. And it's the one that basically argues that the South followed in the footsteps of aspiring nations like Italy in seeking national self-determination against oppression, for example. So this perspective is really kind of more focused on the same idea that we saw with the Mexican session, for example, the idea that anti-slavery violates white southerners' rights and therefore white southerners have a right to create a new government um, like they were watching Aspiring nationalists do in Europe. Now, this is not an accurate perspective because creating a nation based on slavery does not follow in the footsteps of nations seeking rights and self government. Um, There had been no violation, even if there was a right to slavery, it had not been violated. So it's an inaccurate comparison, but it became very widespread as white Southerners are really trying to position. The Confederacy is the latest in a long line of nations rightfully seeking independence. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the conservative secessionist perspective that says it it kind of positions the Confederacy differently relative to international nations. What the conservative perspective says is that the Confederacy was actually going to improve on the model of nationalism as it had been seen in Europe. So the conservative per- perspective says the addition of slavery specifically is going to create the purest form of nationalism that the world has ever seen. And so In this view, the Confederacy was justified because it advances the cause of nationalism further, basically, and betters the nationalism that had been exhibited in Europe. Again, this is obviously inaccurate, but very compelling to white Southerners seeking to defend slavery and focused on race and social order. So we have two different types of secessionist arguments, but Unionists actually use these international perspectives as well. So Southern Unionists also developed a Unionist perspective really to argue that the best national future for the South was to remain within the United States. And here they kind of echoed some of the arguments that we certainly saw in the United States itself. So a lot of emphasis on the kind of Lincolnian last best hope of democracy. So if democracy is crushed in the United States, then it will fail abroad as well. We also see these Southern Unionists looking at European nations that had been divided politically and arguing that this international example taught that divided nations were weak and were going to be vulnerable to tyranny. So they're looking at Poland, which had been partitioned earlier, for example. They're looking at the weakness of the Italian entities before the recent unification of Italy. So they're also using this international model to claim United Nations are strong, divided nations are weak. So it was interesting to me that we really do have these three distinct perspectives, and I think that really emphasizes the centrality of this international analysis. White Southerners really did conceive of their nationhood through these international visions of how the South fits within the world. So again, to me, the variety of perspectives really hammers home that white Southerners saw the South as part of this international conversation on nationhood.
1: And I think this brings up kind of a big, you know, a a huge question, um but it's the shortest one I have here which is what changed during the civil war
0: Good question So obviously conditions change when you go from talk of secession and even movement towards secession to there's now a Confederate States of America and it's at war with the United States trying to defend its legitimacy and independence. And those wartime realities really impacted each of these three different perspectives in ways that forced white Southerners to respond. And they did so in ways that are not necessarily what we would expect. So the liberal international perspective, the threat was best illustrated through actually an Italian nationalist, Giuseppe Garibaldi who was an international celebrity famous for fighting for nationalist movements, most recently in his native Italy, where he had just, in 1860, liberated Sicily to attach it to the new Italian nation. And Garibaldi in Italy had really played a central role in white southerners' comparisons. So they you know, really emphasized that they're following in the footsteps of Italy, that they have the same virtue as Garibaldi. He was kind of their exemplar of an ideal nationalist, until at the start of the Civil War, it becomes internationally known that the United States actually invited Garibaldi to come fight for them, and it didn't work out. But Garibaldi's reply was published internationally, and Garibaldi replied basically that he did support the United States, and further, that he supported abolition. And this really disproved the liberal international perspective right there. The Confederacy cannot follow in the footsteps of Garibaldi and his Italy if Garibaldi says the Confederacy is fighting against his values by defending slavery. So instead of abandoning the liberal international perspective, though, what these secessionists and Confederates end up doing is they remake or try to remake the symbol of Garibaldi to reject him and claim that he had nothing to do with nationalism. After all, he's actually a failed nationalist. Italy would have succeeded without him, maybe even would have been better off without him. And so by rejecting Garibaldi, Contrary to everything they had said about him previously, they really sought to double down on their idea that they followed Garibaldi's Italy, even if they didn't follow Garibaldi himself. So that's kind of one example of an unexpected shift during the Civil War. Um, Of course, for Unionists, in some ways, they're in an even tougher situation because with the war and the establishment of the Confederacy, they've lost the they've lost their vision of a united nation and they're going to have to fight to reclaim it and this is where we see unionists really becoming increasingly radicalized as men like william brownlow in tennessee end up reversing the secessionist international comparisons and arguing instead that it's confederates who are the equivalent of European despots, that the Confederates violated the rights of peaceful unionist Southerners, just like European despots violated the rights of aspiring nations in Europe. So the interesting thing to me about the evolution and these perspectives is it really shows the ongoing commitment that these white Southerners had to these international perspectives, These perspectives weren't just some random something that meant nothing to these confederates. Now, who knows if they believed them or not, but they believed they would be useful enough that they remained committed to them, even in the face of enormous challenges, which really shows how central these international perspectives were to the creation of Southern nationhood.
1: I think you've provided listeners a lot of information to really get Um, to understanding the last, but certainly not the least important question I have for you, which is, how did slavery figure into discussions over Southern nationalism, both before and during the Civil War?
0: Slavery was absolutely central to all of these discussions. So even before the war, Slavery and the expansion of slavery were really the key issues that led white Southerners to begin comparing the South to oppressed European nations in the first place. So as I argue, it's this desire to defend the expansion of slavery that ultimately leads to these international comparisons that helped white Southerners conceive of a separate Southern nation in the first place. And then, of course, during the war, we see that Confederates remain committed to the centrality of slavery to this new nation they've created. You know, in the conservative international perspective, they center slavery as the key that would lead the Confederate nation to unparalleled international greatness. Um, So even liberal perspective continued to argue that the defense of slavery justified a new nation according to these international precedents. So these white Southerners really are using these international perspectives to defend slavery and to defend the idea that a nation based on slavery was legitimate within the bounds of nationalism as it was understood in the middle of the 19th century. So It's here we can really start seeing, this is obviously a domestic discussion, but it's a discussion that white Southerners saw as having a much larger international importance. It was still in flux in the middle of the 19th century as to what exactly was considered to be within the bounds of national legitimacy, nationhood rights, etc. And as we've seen, white Southerners of who support the Confederacy are convinced that their slave-based nation was legitimate, a legitimate member of this international community of nations. And it's really the defeat of the Confederacy and the defeat of these ideas that helps ensure that slavery was not acceptable within the bounds of nationalism and within the bounds of liberal nationalism in particular.
1: Well, Anne, it has been great getting to chat about Newest Born of Nations. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Well, thank you.
1: For everyone else, head to the University of Virginia Press website to purchase a copy of Anne's book. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today at New Books in History. I'm Chris Babbitts. wishing you the best as you engage with cutting-edge works of history.